Welcome to the how the why. With John Barrett Ingalls. Exploring and celebrating the creative process and the creative purpose of authors, editors, artists, and publishers that make up and inspire the 1888 family. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get creative. Hello and welcome to the How, the Why, brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls and today uh, I'm excited to be connected with uh, a fellow Chapman alumni, uh, Mr. Jeff Garvin, author of Symptoms of Being Human. Jeff, thank you for joining us. John Barrett, I'm psyched to be here and may I also say I'm psyched that we got to start off with the awesome uh, yoga jazz music that I always enjoy hearing when I listen to your podcast. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. Uh, Basa Zuzu. They're, uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. I got to talk to the head of that. That was a fun conversation while he was on the road staying at somebody's farmhouse somewhere in the middle of California. What's odd is that that song at the beginning always reminds me of Downer by Nirvana. Okay. I can I've, see that. If you play it back to back, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to jump in, but we're already starting about talking about music. Uh, what, what's going on with 7K? Are you guys, is it 7K or 7,000? 7K. All right. Are well, you- so uh, 7K was my band for uh, 10 years. And in fact, we broke up in the beginning of 2011. And that was kind of the genesis of my sort of freak out like, oh my God, I'm not in a touring rock band anymore. What do I want to be when I grow up? Because like the clock was ticking, like I really needed to start the growing up part fairly quickly after that happened. Um, so I still keep in touch with uh, Corey and David, are two of my best friends in the world. In fact, I'll be at Corey's house on Sunday watching the Packers uh, season opener. Um, but the band as a, as a touring and recording entity, is, as we know it, is, is no longer. But it wasn't like an ugly, like uh, Oasis-style breakup? No, I wish it was more spectacular, but it was like the three of us hugging and crying in a studio together. <laughs> do you think there'll ever be like a reunion tour or I mean do you guys still get together and play music ever well David ended up um, moving to Austin Texas um, and Corey's in so we're kind of all on in different areas um, but, but yeah I mean I, I there's certainly no reason why at some point if we weren't all in the same state at the same time we, we wouldn't get together and jam um, I don't know that a reunion on the scale of something we'd done before would be in order, but yeah, I mean, I I would love to plug back in and 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 jam with those guys at some point. It was, you know, definitely a highlight of all of our uh, professional careers. So, 2011, band breaks up. You are stuck wondering, what am I gonna do? Was that about the time that you picked up the laptop and and started writing? Yeah. So. You know, uh, touring with a rock band is is it's really difficult for your financial life and for your married life, and you know, <laughs> being on the road for months at a time um, just wasn't working for my life. Um, 
And so when we decided to, when the band divided, I sat down and I said, oh my God, like I've been, this has been my identity for the last 15 years. What am I going to do? And I went back to my old diary. I have this Hello Kitty diary that I have when I was eight, eight and a half. <laughs> and like it had a lock on it, but at some point I lost the key. So I just cut it. Um, it's just very, somehow very like symbolic of my process. Like I lost the key. Where are the scissors? <laughs> um, so I look back at the, the list of things I wanted to be when I grew up and, uh, actor was on there and I'd kind of done that and, and singer was on there and I'd, you know, done the rock band thing. And, um, the last two were astronaut and, and uh, novelist. And, um, I looked into the astronaut thing and you have, there's a lot of math. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of math. And I, I was, and then you got to be in really good shape and a military background. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just watch like Neil deGrasse Tyson documentaries on Netflix <laughs> and write a book. <clears throat> so that's when I that's when I sort of first decided, all right, I'm going to I'm going to write a novel. Now, the first thing that you wrote, I mean, you, you were telling me before we we officially started that uh, you, you found your agent before symptoms of being human. Was that from a novel, an as-yet-to-be-released novel? Is that how you ended up with the agent? <laughs> so, well, it's interesting, you know, because when you start writing, uh, a friend of mine once said, you got 12 bad books in you, so you, you have to start writing them now because you if you want to get to number 13, you just have to write them all. Um, and I don't know that 12 is the magic number, but so I did a national novel writing month, NaNoWriMo, um, I, I roped my friend into doing it and we both wrote a 50,000 word novel in 30 days as is the challenge. And then, uh, we, you know, read each other's books and we agreed that they were horrible and unreadable, <laughs> but I walked away from the experience going, wow, I wrote a book. This was awesome. I didn't have to leave my house. I didn't have to plug any gear in or haul any gear in or drive an RV across the country. <clears throat> so, um, I wrote another one. And that one was like an epic fantasy, because that's what I read when I was a teenager, like the Dragonlance novels, sure. um, the Robert Jordan Wheel of Time series. I loved fantasy, so I'm going to write a fantasy. And I wrote that, and I did the, the Stephen King method of, you know, you write it, and then you put it in a drawer for six weeks. Um, and I pulled it out, and I read it, and the aha moment for me was that I read my, you know, gargantuan, bloated, 150,000-word epic fantasy manuscript. And I thought, wow, like 70% of this is just unreadable. But 30% of it is actually good. And my aha moment was, oh, my God, I know which parts are good. That's, yeah, that's important. I can, I can just cut the bad parts and then just write the good parts. So from there, I wrote uh, the novel that got me an agent. Um, and it was um, a young adult dystopian fantasy. Uh, and I'm really proud of it. And maybe someday it, it will find its way um, to the light. But I was kind of just, I was kind of late to the dystopian tea party, like um, Divergent, the movie Divergent had just come out. So we, Hunger Games' second movie had just come out, Divergent had landed. So the, the, the publishing industry was sort of like, um, okay, if there's teenagers in an oppressive government, we're kind of out, sorry. <laughs> um, I let, not, it wasn't as bad at that point as like writing a vampire or werewolf book, that would have been worse. Um, but, but so, but my, the agent that I met, I, I, so my, my agent process was interesting. So I wrote this book and I was happy with it. And so I knew I didn't want to do the self, the self publishing route just as a musician. I had done the DIY thing for so long. Sure. Um, I was really after a traditional publishing experience. Um, 
and that that certainly colored what I wrote. I was definitely trying to write commercial fiction. I didn't want it to be soulless and vapid, but I, I wanted to write something that that might have a broad commercial appeal and, and might appeal to a major publisher. So I started writing this book and I, I got I was proud of it. So instead of doing the query letter thing, I know so many writers, you know, they here's what you do. You buy, you buy, you go to Barnes and Noble or you go online and you buy a copy of the writer's market. It's this big, thick book, right? And it's got every agent and every publisher listed and what they like and how to and what they're how to send uh, how to send them your manuscripts. Same thing they have for actors and kind of like like the agents, the what is it called? The Wolf's Guide for Agents or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's like this big, intimidating book with no personality in it, and it's very complete. And it's a, I mean, I have one. It's funny. The last issue I bought was 2011. Um, but you go through there and just, I just like, if you're a new writer, just buy this thing and read it because you'll be like, oh, this is how those people talk and this is what they say they're going to look for. So I started looking through and going, okay, so there's a couple agents that are looking for what I'm writing so that I'm in the right ballpark. But the thought of just like writing letters and sending them off in the, in the mail or by email to people, it just, that sounded horrible. Like, you know, having been an actor and gone on auditions and then you never hear anything, I just, yeah. that was, I just didn't want to do that. Um, so I decided I was going to go to a writer's conference because um, I'm more of an in-person guy anyway. So I went to this writer's conference uh, called Writer's Digest West and I started pitching the book in person, um, which is terrifying, by the way, like a total body numbing out of your, your, your soul has left your body, terrified, cold sweat, anxiety attack moment. Because you get to um, see... If they're like looking at their watch or, you know, seeing who's behind you or if they're really invested in what you're telling them. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like you're in a room with 200 other writers and 12 agents and it's like, it's insane. You're like, you have, and at the first one I went to, literally there was a woman with a bullhorn and a stopwatch and she'd go, <laughs> three minutes, go. Jeez. Oh, and then at the end of three minutes, move. So I get up to my first pitch, right? And I'm, I'm standing in front of uh, the, 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 the woman who, who's going before me and she's sitting down pitching her book and and the woman with the bullhorn goes next and uh so i'm like okay i've got like a nine minute pitch i have to i have to do it in three minutes and the woman doesn't get up and move and i'm like no move <laughs> so i sit down and um it's weird like people can't see what i look like i have like uh, spiky hair and tattoos I, I look like i was in a band so i sit down and i'm like I take a deep breath and I'm preparing to just launch into my nine minute pitch at, at triple speed uh, to try and get through it. And the agent's like, oh, tell me about your tattoo. And I'm like, no, I, don't, <laughs> I only have two and a half minutes now. So anyway, the first pitch, it went well. And uh, she said, oh, send me the manuscript. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not done with it yet. And she said, what do you mean you're not done with it? I'm like, well, I, I, I'm still revising. She's like, well, then why are you pitching it? I'm like, I don't know. There's like, you're supposed to pitch at these things. <laughs> so that was my first like taste of validation. And then I went to another writer's conference the next year, pitched the revised book, and um, and ended up with that's how I met my agent. I sort of like uh, sent her some nice follow up emails after the conference, and we talked on the phone, and she signed me up. And then I was a an author with an agent, which uh, feels amazing because it suddenly you're not alone in the world. Right. So then the book that I had written was part one of a trilogy, and one of the unwritten rules of being a novelist is never write the second book of your trilogy if you haven't sold the first yet. Because 
deal, you'll have two books you can't sell if right. the first one doesn't sell. And I was really resistant to that because I was really wanting to write this series. But I, okay, I'll write this other book. And that's when, so as my agent is trying to shop my um, young adult dystopian fantasy, that's when I started writing Symptoms. Now tell our listeners a little bit about Symptoms of Being Human. Symptoms of Being Human is a young adult contemporary novel about Riley, who is 16 years old and gender fluid. And Riley starts a blog, an anonymous blog, to deal with the harassment at school and the tension at home. And an anonymous commenter comes along and threatens to out Riley to the world. So it's a, it's a coming-of-age story. It's a story that deals with gender identity. Um, it takes place in Orange County. Riley's father is a, um, a, con- a congressman running for re-election. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a coming-of-age story set against a backdrop of you know, conservative politics and gender identity. Hmm. It's, is it, does it take place now? Is it this the time period? Yes, it's, it's contemporary. So it's, it's modern day happening now. It's interesting. I mean, as far as like seeking an, an an audience and striking while the iron's hot, I feel like uh, these issues are are something that are are very potent and and uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the young the YA audience, but definitely the media in general is going to. It seems like they would eat this up and love it well it's a tender thing you know i i i wish i could tell you i had the fourth the foresight to say i'm going to write a book that deals with queer issues or that deals with gender issues um you know i'm a heterosexual cis male who grew up in orange county um uh so i'm a guest in the queer community Mm. um and I, i i'll just be honest about the way this book came to me i was in a car with some friends and some friends of friends, and a girl, the, the girl that was driving, brought up a court case that was taking place in my county, and she said, um, "Hey, so there's this court case where this this uh, transgender girl, only I think she called him a boy. She misgendered, um, uh, she misgendered her. Hmm. She said this transgender girl and her parents are suing the school district so she can use the, or so he can use the boys' locker room or the girls' locker room." Um, I remember and, that. Yeah. Right. And so I'm like, so that she said that and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great conversation. And, and then she said, "Ooh, it's probably just some pervy boy who wants to see boobs. <laughs> and my jaw hit the floor and I was waiting for the argument to start, but, but it didn't start. So I, you know, I woke up the next day just kind of haunted by that conversation because I thought I was in a car with people who shared, you know, we were all kind of liberal, young, you know, people. And I thought, wow, how, how could I be so disconnected from what my, the people around me the people who grew up with me are thinking. Um, and I sat down to write this book and I wrote, you know, the, the Riley's opening blog post. And it, as it developed, as it developed, I realized that if I was really going to, if I was really going to take on this book, I needed to be able to relate to the main character, um, without knowing his or her birth assigned gender. So a transgender character became a gender fluid character. And I was able to somehow write the whole book without ever discussing Riley's birth assigned gender. Wow, that's interesting. Because, you know, I mean, obviously, I think you even have it on the back of the book. Your first question is, am I a boy or a girl? And, you know, reading through and hearing about it, it's like, well, you know, as for whatever reason, my brain wants to know, well, 
what was uh, what was her she or he birth assigned. So it's really interesting that that never comes up. Well, you know, I, it's the book is obviously the book is about gender issues, and it's there's going to be a lot of conversation around that with this book. But to me. And the reason why the title is Symptoms of Being Human is because what's human is to try and categorize or, or label people because somewhere along the you know, evolution chain, different was dangerous. And so we had to identify what was different about other people so that we could stay away from those people who were sick or who were you know, part of a warring tribe or, or you know, whatever, whatever those things are implanted in our genes that make us want to categorize and, 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 and pigeonhole people. Hmm. But at the end of the day... <clears throat> Authors write characters that are opposite their gender all the time, um, and no one bats an eye. So it's like, why can't we have a character? Why do we have to know, you know, what's what equipment that person was born with? Why can't we just uh, 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 relate to someone based on how charming or funny or or entertaining or loving or angry they are? And hopefully, Riley is all those things. Um, they're angry and funny and confused. Right. And all of those things. Which any teenager would be going through, which we all have gone through, all humans. And that's uh, interesting. And so yeah. And it's a tender thing because, you know, as a person who I, I've not only have I never struggled with gender identity, but really as a cis person until I wrote this book, I never really had to reckon with it. Like the world is the world is built for, you know, white men who are between five, six and six feet tall. Like everything in the world is designed so that I can have my hands on it. So it was a great humbling experience for me to have conversations with, you know, with friends who are transgender, um, to meet new friends who are gender fluid or bigender or, you know, non-binary, all of these different categories and, and ways people identify themselves and to, and to gain an appreciation for the things that I take for granted and also to sort of re-examine my own identity and how I relate to the world. I mean, the book, comes out February. So right now all that it exists is whatever you've sent out. Are you noticing that there is like a uh, an embracing from the trans community to this thing that doesn't even exist yet or you know, I, it's it's amazing because in in publishing now, you know, there's these things called advanced reader copies that go out to, you know, the publisher will send out like a paperback version of the book to Book bloggers, um, to, to booksellers, um, to, to just readers, to librarians, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, I have been, so far, I feel very fortunate that the, that the response from the queer community has been very positive um, and, and, and they've been very welcoming. It's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to write, to write from the perspective of a character who doesn't enjoy the privilege that the author enjoys. Right. So I, I tried to be very conscientious, but also at some point as an author, you have to abandon that and go, this character is just a person and I'm just a person. And I have to make an effort to identify with and respect the things that I haven't had to endure. But also I've endured things that are, that are analogous to that. Um, but yeah, so far the, the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So how long did it take you to write once your agent was shopping around the uh, dystopic YA, how long did the, and I'm not talking about the rewrites of just as far as getting this story out. It's hard to say because I started in February, like at the end of February. So let's call it March 1st, 2000, 
14, like last year, March. And uh, it sold the first week of June, but it was it was a partial. So I, I actually, the book sold before I had finished it. Mm. Um, and then I finished it. So I, it's hard to track, but I would say about the first draft took about four months to write from beginning to end. And your agent was uh, on board for this concept and... Uh, uh... Were you sending her chapters as you write them? So <clears throat> I'm as a, as a writer, I'm very protective. Like I only share my writing with a very small group of people and they all encouraged me to send it to my agent. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And like, I will just pitch it to your agent over the phone. And so I pitched it to my agent over the phone and she said, um, yeah, send it to me. And she read it overnight and called me back and said, I want to go out with this as a partial, which is basically, I want to sell this book before it's finished. Right. Um, so I sent her, I don't know, maybe a hundred pages. Um, and then by the time we actually submitted it, it was maybe 125. Um, so yeah, it was a crazy process to be, cause we were, we had been shopping my first book for nine months and this sold in nine days. That's amazing. Yeah. It was. Well, what, what I mean, what was that experience like, you know, what, what, and especially having like such a, uh, one of the big publishers being interested in it before it's even done. What did, what was that like? I mean, in your best writer words. <laughs> well, so, you know, I'm working, I've been working, I was working a full-time job at the time in marketing. So I would get up at 4 a.m. and I'd write 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. and then go to, and then drive an hour to my day job and drive home. And then I'd come home and, and collapse. And so you start to write off things like exercise and cooking and laundry, and you really start to look like a writer. Like that's when you understand like the level of like physical degradation that you see when you look at like old pictures of, of Hemingway, you know, at his drunkest in Paris. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's the, um, so, you know, at some point in my bleary, sleep-deprived state, I got a text from my agent while I'm sitting at my day job that says, call me right now. And then you walk out of the building and your agent says, uh, there's an offer on your book. And that, that moment of dream coming true is, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's profound. It's like, it's such a validation. It's such a, an emotional moment, but there's also this tremendous amount of like unreality and surrealness to it. Sure. Um, and what I've learned through this process from the point of getting the agent to say yes to getting an offer from a publisher is you have to celebrate every single victory. Sure. Because between those victories is absolute insanity. It just hanging on to the bumper of the car and putting your feet on the skateboard and praying that they don't turn too fast. How did it change the way you were writing the book or did it at all knowing that knowing you're not even done with it but that this is actually going to be something? You know, I, that's a great question and I it didn't really change anything for me because at that point I had a clear picture of the finish line. You know, I, I, I knew how I wanted the book to end. The characters were fully formed. Um, and it really was just like, a it was, it was, the, you know, having the validation when you're 75% of the way through writing a book is like, 
what a, what great timing because that ending right. is, is sometimes it's the hardest to get to, you know. And I think it's kind of what we all want. It's just like, please let me know that I'm not doing this in vain. I have worked so hard and I just have this little bit. To, oh, oh, cool. Thank you. All right. Yeah, now I can finish. But, but you know, like you say, there's so many reasons why you write a book and, it, and people say no. There's so many reasons that you, they say no. And then there are reasons why they say yes. And sometimes they aren't the reasons that you wish they were, you know? Like, no one's going to call you up and say, Jeff, on page 141, the way you used that semicolon in that sentence just reminded me of, you know, when I was a child in the zoo. Like, no one's going to call you <laughs> and like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So at some point you have to realize, OK, I'm this is I'm standing at the at the intersection of art and commerce where many a writer has been, you know, mauled before. Um, and so you kind of have to keep your head about you and go. The idea that I had is marketable and the writing that I have is marketable. And this, you know, this publisher is willing to take a risk. And now I have to deliver. <clears throat> Did you uh, at what point did you start working with an editor? So in the at least the, uh, the way HarperCollins and Balzer and Bray work is that the, the the acquisitions editor that bought my book was the one that ended up working with me as an editor. So I finished the book you know, probably in July and start and sent it to, maybe I was August, I finished the final draft maybe. And then, and then I, you know, six weeks and then I got my first editorial letter <laughs> from my editor, which is, they call it a compliment sandwich. You know, it's like, uh, John Barrett, we, this is, we love your book. It's the best thing we've ever read. Um, Listen on page two, it really starts to fall apart, and right. then and then and then again at the end, it's like we love your book. So it's it's a huge like, you know, you've written a song and put out a song, and some people liked it and some people didn't, but no one's ever sat down with you and gone bar three. What were you thinking going to a you know a G flat? That just doesn't <laughs> even work, you know. <clears throat> so um, so the the editorial experience is tremendously hum humbling because. <clears throat> excuse me, here you have the opportunity to work with a person who's all they do for a living is make is pick the books that'll sell and make the books better. And their livelihood depends on whether they're right. So uh, I was very blessed. My uh, my editor is Kristen Renz at Balzer and Bray, and she's just frighteningly intelligent, very compassionate thinks of all the things I never would have thought of. And she's just super dedicated to making not just the book a better book, but me a better writer. So anyway, so 16 pages of single spaced editorial letter and you start revising. So I was revising from, you know, probably September to January. And this is a content editing, not just line editing. This is you know your story this character why would they do that or or is this just the uh is this every all of grammar grammar spelling to start with it's content editing you know the the classic joke how many editors does it take to screw in a light bulb does it have to be a light bulb I mean, <laughs> you start you start there and um but you know so it's yeah does the plot make sense are the characters fully developed is there anything that should be, are there any characters that should be cut? Are there any, is there anything we're missing? And, and, and what, what parts need to be deepened and what parts just need to be omitted? Was there 
a pressure because this is your first book and this is this big publishing house? Was there a pressure to just kind of uh, acquiesce to whatever your editor said and said, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, we'll do that? Or were there things that you wanted to fight for? I have a policy called take every note. Yeah. And that doesn't mean change everything they want you to change. That means if there's a note, like that person didn't receive what you were sending out. So you either have to figure out what you did wrong or you have to figure out, are you okay with that person not getting it? Um, I think at the beginning there was probably a little bit of a, I want to please, I want to please the big, um, the big publisher, but just Balzer and Bray as an imprint, they're just, everyone that I've met there is so, they love books. I mean, yeah. these people get up, get on the subway, go to work, work till seven, read unfinished books on the subway on the way home. And then on Saturday and Sunday, they read, it's like, it's like, imagine if you only ever got to read unedited, unfinished stuff all the time. So these, these people are book loving, book enthusiasts. All they want are good books. So there's no, there's nobody like, at Balzer and Bray banging a gavel going, this isn't HarperCollins material, kid. <laughs> it's very like personal and emotional, and, and, um, and, and it was a very creative, collaborative process. Um, so I really felt like my, my integrity as an artist was never really challenged. There were a couple of big, big points that I went to bat for, and my editor said, okay, but in the next draft, I reserve the right to come back at you um, and I said, okay, I respect that. I'm going to, I'm going to take your, I'm going to take your criticism. And I, I was able to, to keep them in. So, um, I feel like, like it was a great lesson in artistic integrity, which is you really have to figure out what's your ego and what's your artistic integrity because they often smell very similar. Um, so your release date is February 2nd of 2016. Was that release date is there any reason why? I mean, is that just the publisher who decided? Is that for books? Is that a good time for books to come out? Or I think February is the best time for books to come out, John Barrett. Uh, it's that's the no, um, <laughs> especially I, the the second. That's the best. I mean, age. there are you know there there are so many considerations into when a book goes out, um, and I and I don't pretend to understand them all. I know that fall tends to be when famous authors, established authors release their big books, you know, in prep for the Christmas season. Right. Um, and I know there are other seasons where you want to make sure your book is released by this date. If you, you know, if you think your publisher is going to put you, you know, in contention for XYZ award or that kind of thing. And, oh, if your book deals with gender issues, are there any other books dealing with gender issues coming out? And how can we not have it released the same date as that book? I think there's all that kind of stuff. Um, Oh, and honestly, I had zero input. When I found out the book wasn't coming out till February, I thought, oh my God, that's, you know, forever. So, yeah. It's so far away. And it's hard to explain, but um, people ask me, so is the book done? Like, is it edited? And I'm like, I'll believe the book is done when I have a hardbound, like when I walk into Romans in Pasadena and <laughs> put my hand on a hard copy. That's when I'll know the book is done. Um, it just seems like an endless amount of, the revision and fine tuning. In fact, just today I turned in another pass of, um, you know, corrections and little, you know, little word choice things. And it's amazing how much there is still to do. So you still keep going over and, and, 
reading it through and finding other things. You're, you're going to continue that really up until the end. I hope this is the last round. This one was only like 15 notes in the whole manuscript. So I'm, I'm hoping this is the last one, but really I've learned, don't try to understand the whole process. Just mm. get on the bus and be like, Oh look, we're stopping here. Oh look, we're stopping here. Well, Jeff, it's really, really exciting. I, I mean, you know, I, I, I am just this guy that does this podcast, but it feels like this is a really important book at a really important time. So I, I, I'm super excited for you. Thanks. I'm, um, I'm, I feel very blessed to have had the response that I've had so far. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a creative person. I've always wanted to be creative for a living and, um, and sitting in my house with my cats and my dog, making stuff up for a living is an absolute dream come true. And I'm, I'm, I feel super blessed. And I hope the book it emotionally moves people and, and, and expands their minds um, and hopefully takes them away from whatever their life is like for mm. a couple of hours. You know, that's yeah. the, that's the, the goal. End of the day. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. This is a, a lot of fun. Very informative. John Barrett. Thanks for spending the time with me. I've had a great, a great time. This has been the how, the why by 1888. I'm John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The music is Mayalua by Bossa Zuzu. I wanted to thank everybody for your creativity and your inspiration, and to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you. Thank you.